Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Well, our title for today's message is Godly Jealousy. Our title is Godly Jealousy. Now that uh, is something that would pique somebody's interest in saying, what? <laughs> what did you say, godly jealousy? Isn't that a sin? Well, normally it is, isn't it? It's got godly but it does have godly before it. Just like godly anger. <laughs> uh, so how can God be jealous because he's a good God and he's per- perfect in every way? I think it's a great question. How can be How can there be a jealous God and it be right? Well, that's a question that Oprah Winfrey did not understand an answer to. And her point of departure from Orthodox Christianity was right there. Oprah stated, and this is in her words, I was in my 20s and I remember sitting in a church that church happened to be, I believe, Reverend Jerry, Jeremiah Wright's church, if you might remember Jeremiah Wright. Um, anyway, he was preaching about how God uh, was a jealous God, and uh, she said, The Lord thy God was a jealous God, and the Lord thy God would condemn us for whatever. And so when she heard that, she said, I had a spiritual aha. I was in my late 20s. And I suddenly thought, how can this God, who is all-loving and all-powerful, why would God be jealous of me? Now, I think to many that would seem like the question they would answer back with that. You know, that's a good question to ask. Throughout the New Testament, you will see that when you see the word jealous, it's uh, not a good term. It uh, is, a, is a vice, it's a sin, it's not a virtue. And, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter, says that love is not jealous. So there we go. Are we in a quandary here? Well, as far as Oprah is concerned, she stated that was the aha moment for her. This was the moment that caused Oprah to turn from her childhood faith to a new age faith in the God of her own making. So she didn't like that God of being a jealous God, and so she went to a new age faith. She couldn't believe that a God of love also could be a jealous God. Now, to the natural mind, that would make sense in a way. Uh, You notice that specific point, the aha there was in fact an utter whole misunderstanding of what scripture says about God. And that's the whole point. Even though sometimes we have passages that seem to be conflicting, we know the word of God never is conflicting. Matter of fact, God is not the author of confusion. And so when we have two points that seem to be at odds against each other, we know that God's truth is right and never did he make a mistake. It's us who has the problem, and we must be able to search that out and then look to see what 
the Bible, the whole Bible, says about it. And, of course, that's the point of uh, Bible reading and Bible study. Uh, Human jealousy is usually negative, though, isn't it? It's usually a a sin, and we can have jealousy against a neighbor, a friend, a family member, co-worker. We can get all upset over the successes of other people and rejoice over the failure that the people have. And that is an illustration of human jealousy. And yes, that is what is bad. You have images there of these different kind of situations of, um, of people. And the problem is, is themselves when we have that. We can't tolerate sometimes when somebody has something that we don't have. That would be jealous. This kind of jealousy is also rooted in a similar term, but yet different. It's envy. It's rooted in envy, and it makes one want to deprive that other person of enjoyment. Not only would you like to have what they have, but you don't want them to have what they have and enjoy it. And so that's where envy comes in. So it's a, I think it would be a good point to make a distinction here between jealousy and envy. There is a distinction Jealousy can be good or bad. Most of the time in the New Testament, you will see it in a bad connotation. Envy is a completely different word. In the Greek language, it's like I say, it's almost, well, it's always bad. Envy is a feeling of displeasure because somebody has been blessed. Somebody is blessed and you're displeased with that. And... Jealousy makes one want what others are enjoying, but envy makes one want to deprive them of their enjoyment of it. So there is the difference. Oprah seemed to think that God is envious of her, and that's what she was thinking. And I use Oprah we should pray for her. I, I, I use her because she's made an impact on literally millions of people who have watched her TV shows and read her books and promoted books that are entirely and completely opposite of who Jesus Christ is, although she would espouse belief in Jesus, but not the Jesus of Nazareth of Scripture. So that's why I use that. Sometimes I will name names, but it's because I care that people would say, okay, if somebody comes to us and says, well, what's, I like Oprah Winfrey, what's wrong with her? Well, we can say, for one thing, she has a different Jesus. She doesn't want the God who is a jealous God. She doesn't want the God of the Old Testament. She wants the God that she's made in her own mind. And it's a loving, merciful, compassionate God with no holiness or, in this case, jealousy. Uh, There is a big difference between jealous of someone and jealous for someone. There is a huge difference there. God says, I'm jealous for you. In other words, He doesn't want you worshiping any other thing, any other idol, anything else. I'm a jealous God. That's what God says. He doesn't want anything to take his place in worshiping, to dismiss him. Perhaps you're still not comfortable with this idea of God being jealous. 
And I will add one other thing, and I'll make it worse first before it gets better. It's kind of like this rain that we've had. It's gotten worse as it's gone along, but it's going to get better, isn't it? And over the long haul, we know what God, God is doing His thing, you know. He knows what He's doing with this. Sometimes we see that nothing bad comes out of this, but we know better. We know that God uses it. Sometimes hard to see at that time, but uh, at the same time, we know God is in control. But jealousy is not just a passing mood that God would have. Oh, he seems to be jealous right now. And it just, you know, it comes and it goes. Um, maybe it's some kind of minor trait. You know, this jealousy, it's not equal with his holiness and, and his righteousness. It's, it's not up there with it. Paul knows better. He knows that this is an attribute of God. Paul knows how God is, and so Paul is jealous for the church at Corinth. And that's why he uses this idea. It's rather radical, isn't it? Sometimes we have some radical views that we bring forth uh, on Sunday mornings, if you've noticed. And it's only radical because one is not in tune with the Lord and his amazing word that goes beyond the natural. And Paul knew that he was responsible for the people. And he knew God would be jealous for them. And Paul is jealous for the Corinthian people. He didn't want to see them turn against God and the truth that had been given to them, the very gospel that they needed to be converted. He didn't want to see them turn from that gospel and turn to idols, which is where they came from. Turn to deception and lies. That's what's being presented by some false teachers that had come in. So this is what we'll be focusing on today, the jealousy of God. So let's uh, grab our Bibles and let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Why don't we stand for uh, the reading of God's holy word in the first three verses. And this deals with this amazing subject. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Father, thank you for your word. As we focus in on it now, may your word speak to each one of us and that we learn better about what your character is. It's completely different than the way that human thought is. But you are changing us, you are conforming us into the very image of Christ. And so we are thinking differently than we would have before we knew Christ. Thank you, Lord. Now let your Holy Spirit come in and teach us with power. In your Son's name, amen. All right. Paul has concern. Paul is in the midst of the defense of his apostleship. 
and the legitimacy of his uh, gospel ministry. It's been challenged. He's had some things he's had to say about himself that he wouldn't ordinarily really like to say. Because I really don't think most people really like to bring praise to themselves. Um, So he has to bring forth the truth. He has to do this. So he says, I wish that you would bear with me. Oh, that you would put up with me. (laughs) Just put up with me just just for a little bit here. And and you'll notice that he's been using sarcasm in in, uh, chapter 10. Goes right into chapter 11. He continues to use sarcasm. Put up with me for a little while longer. This foolishness, right? Uh, Would you please endure my self-defense a little bit longer? (laughs) Would you endure that? You've endured me up to now. And I want you to endure me a little bit longer. And it's like, I admit, this is a foolish thing. (laughs) It sounds kind of strange. It's foolishness. You can see that the apostle thinks here it's a... It's an embarrassing thing to have to do to constantly be bringing up himself here. We don't like to sing our own praises, Paul is saying. So he uses this, uh, this idea of foolishness, and it's really a, it's a term denoting that which is in the realm of human folly or irrationality. That's the kind of foolishness that he's talking about. Uh, sheer nonsense. Paul is about to do some sheer nonsense to them. Remember, the gospel is considered to be foolishness that he spoke about in 1 Corinthians. Well, certainly, he's not saying that in the literal way that the gospel is, is absolute foolishness. We know better than that. Of course, in the context, we, we grab that if we, anybody reads, but somebody could read that and say, oh, my, did you hear what Dennis said today? He said the gospel is foolish. Oh, uh, and Paul is foolish. Well, that would def- definitely be out of context, wouldn't it? And that's this whole topic. We can take it and and run with it and make it be out of context of what it is. Uh, So he calls this a little foolishness by speaking about himself in order to counteract the um, teaching that has come in and the impact these intruders have made to the Corinthian church. Uh, Hughes wrote a commentary on this. Philip Hughes said, Paul is prepared to appear... uh, Paul is prepared to appear to indulge in what he calls a little foolishness by speaking about himself in order to counteract the impact of the intruders who in their foolishness have been extolling themselves. And another one, uh, Denny, who wrote in a commentary, says he plays the fool for the occasion, plays for the fool, of set purpose. There's a reason he does this. They do it always, those false teachers, and without knowing it, like men to the manner born. So you notice there's a recurring word of this vocabulary of foolishness in this whole chapter, chapter 11, even chapter 12. You see it here in verse 1. You move down to verse 16, you'll see that word again. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish. There he says, don't think of me being foolish that time. He uses that word again. And then in verse 17, what I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, okay? Confidence of boasting, using sarcasm. Um, 
verse 19, for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. Again, he uses that term. Uh, uses it frequently, doesn't he? Um, verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. We're weak. We're foolish. But whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. And then he starts doing his so-called bragging. Are they Hebrews? Uh, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Right? So he brings that forth. Uh, he's really reluctant to do that. He's not taking great pride in it. He didn't want to do it. And he'll explain why in verse 2 as we approach that. We're just about there to verse 2 already. Um, Paul's not trying to vindicate himself. He's not trying to take on the super apostles and make himself look better because they were trying to undermine his uh, ministry that he had brought forth, his influence. What he is concerned is, is that there is a different Christianity. There is a different gospel, which there really is no other. But apart from what the truth really is, the stakes are really high here. It's about the gospel. Eternal destiny is at stake. That's what we're talking about. This is where Paul is really concerned. That's how concerned he is. Chapter 12, verse 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. <laughs> I've become foolish. You did it. You caused it. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent super apostles, even though I am a nobody. You see how he uses the sarcasm here? Rather cutting, isn't it? Biting sarcasm, even about himself. But he, he hopes for a respectable hearing here. Uh, you are bearing with me. I want you to keep bearing with me. You've done it. You are indeed bearing with me. You responded to my first letter, 1 Corinthians. You responded to the severe letter after I wrote to that. I got good news from Titus on that. You endeared those confrontations. You put up with that. He says, now hang in there. I want you to continue to bear with my foolishness as I engage myself in this self-defense. And it's caused by your own foolish mutiny. <laughs> He's not really boasting about himself, although it would appear that way, but he has to bring, bring it forth. Uh, if you were to back up in chapter 10, near the very end of chapter 10, verse 17, he has an Old Testament quote. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. See, he just said that a couple verses earlier. He says, it may seem like I'm boasting about myself. I'm boasting in Christ. That's the only thing I have to boast about anyway. So Paul is not as rude as it seems to look like, does it? Paul was not beating his own drum but it was for the glory of the Lord. To boast in the Lord. So, that's number one. A little foolishness. A little foolishness. Go to the second one. This is a picture. This is a picture of a father and his daughter 
who he's going to betroth or has betrothed to be engaged to the future husband. So he draws from that picture. What an illustration. He's made the point. Now he comes back and hammers it with this brilliant picture. He's concerned about the Corinthians like a father would be about his daughter. Now, the word jealous, and we're going to back up and, and use the Old Testament word for a moment, quana. Because, and you say, why well, you go into the Old Testament about, well, there's where we see the character of God. The Hebrew word means intensely red. It's like the changing of the color of a face. You've seen it. You've seen it when somebody's gotten hot, red, red hot with anger, right? Maybe, maybe you've done it somewhere along the line in your own life. <laughs> uh, emotions that are heated, they're associated with passion. So that's the idea here of jealous. But it, when it's used in the Old Testament, it's always associated with God this particular word. When you see a jealous God, that's a good term. Yes, he does become angry. But he's jealous for his wife. We'll explain that in a moment. The wife, his people. He has a nature, he has attributes, his characteristics what uh, systematic theology has been going through for many weeks and uh, covered the attributes of God. Or it means the character of God or the nature of God, right? You guys, when you, when you study that, you, you can't study it enough. You can't study enough about the nature of God. Matter of fact, I think you're at the highest when you get into the realm of thinking of his nature. This word today is really very theological. So we're jumping from chapter 10, which I made no apologies for chapter 10, but yet it seemed like it was kind of an odd thing to be covering. But we go verse by verse, and it really makes sense as we move right into chapter 11, doesn't it? And as he explains this, now he gets heavy into theology. He gets into the very name, not only the nature of God, but his name you guys covered the name of God back uh, a week, two weeks ago, something like that. The time just flies. Exactly. Was, that, was that Zach? Exactly. Okay, yeah. The name of God. Study the name of God. Or the names. It's all over the Old Testament. We see a jealous God all over the Old Testament. And in a moment, you'll see what I mean by that. You say, all over. You're kind of overestimating that, Dennis, please, you know might be in a passage or two. Well, what I will do is do an exhaustive search on that. It won't be exhaustive, but we will use several scriptures. And you go, oh, okay. Um, his qualities, his nature, his attributes are infinite, aren't they? His nature is eternal, right? It is unchangeable. God does not change Think about that. Just that word right there just really amazes me because I'm a person who changes. Now, I don't like to change. 
My body's changing every day, like it or not. Other things change all around me. When you have rain, things change. Grass will grow. It'll also kind of wash away grass seed, <laughs> things you plant, and ruin your tomatoes and stuff. Not sure where I was going with that. Sorry about that. There was a point. There really was a point with that. It's about change, thanks. God never changes. He is ever constant, ever sure. There was a song, Christian song, I think it went back to the 80s, <laughs> to the 80s. Ever constant, ever sure. Luke Garrett was the guy who did that. I'll bet you there's nobody in this room that remembers that. I'm, I'm not going to look at anybody. Okay. He's ever constant, ever sure. He is unchangeable. You can count on him all the time. I can't count on myself. He's not just big on love. We know he's big on love. But he's not just big on love and small on, on holiness, is he? Right? Well, he's a, he's a loving God. Yeah, there's a little bit of holiness there, but no, they are equal. Um, he's not really merciful and he's somewhat jealous. Is he? Does he have one attribute that's, that's way over another? They're on the same plane. They're actually equal. He's every bit as holy as he is loving. And more to the point, he is as jealous as he is merciful. Wow. Jealous? We don't think about that often. Have, have I really ever talked about it very much? I have talked about it. It probably hasn't been that long ago, but I don't talk about that very often, do I? But really, that's him. He reveals himself. By the way, his name, as we said, is Jealous. I think it's fascinating if we would look up a scripture and find that. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. This is exciting. We find a name of God. Now, a lot of us know about some of the names of God. There are tons of them. This is one we don't usually use. At least, I don't think of anyway. But maybe I ought to a little more. In this, the covenant is being renewed to his people. He says, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. Not there, his name is Yahweh, but here it says his name is jealous. By the way, the word name means everything of who he is. It's all about him. He's Yahweh or Jehovah, his name is jealous, is a jealous God. So, you could say, my God, his name is jealous. It is. We have a total different view of that, though, don't we? But see, he is. And it's for his people. What's interesting, he reveals himself when he tells his attributes, it tells his name, doesn't he? He is revealing himself constantly. All throughout the scripture, you will see God revealed 
That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to hold back himself. He wants to show us himself. He wants to show some of his glory. One of these days we will see much more glory than we see now. He's a jealous God. This is not tucked away in some obscure passage, is it, where it says, my name is Jealous. No, it's right in the heart. It's the heart of the covenant with his people where he says this. It's not hidden at all. Okay, let's look at Exodus chapter 20. If you happen to be in Exodus, you're in the same book, right, as you just were. Exodus 20 is dealing with the giving of the Ten Commandments. What? You mean... We're going to find something about this in, in the Ten Commandments section? Yeah. Uh, we'll find it in verse, verse 5. You shall not worship them, idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So right there, just as he is in the Ten Commandments, he just started off with the... Uh, the first two commandments there. And he says, I'm a jealous God. You have nothing before. You have no idols. You have no images before me. You have me. I'm jealous of that. Now, that's one place where he says that. We're going to wear you out. Are you ready? He's jealous. How often does he say it? Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24. Says it. Frequently, reminds his people he is jealous for them. He doesn't want them to have other idols, other gods. 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Wow. So he, he judges, he's jealous. Let's look at chapter 5 of Deuteronomy in verse 9. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the only God, and he says this is the Yahweh God. I'm jealous. This is in the books of the law. This is the law. First five books, the Pentateuch, is the law, isn't it? It's the Tanakh. This is dealing with the law that God gives, and he keeps reminding them. He'd say, isn't that enough? Well, apparently not, because they kept going back to idols all the way through the history of the people. Chapter 6, verse 15. For the Lord your God in the midst of you, that's pretty convicting, he's in your midst, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. And he'll wipe you off the face of the earth. Thank you, Lord, for your jealousy. We could be wiped right off. And it's because he's jealous for us. That's a good term. That God is that way. It reminds us, oh, he's jealous. He does not want me to have anything in place of him, does he? I'm in the midst of you. Rather clear, isn't it? Turn to Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. Like I say, this is not something that's just hidden. I said it's all over the Old Testament. We're just in one book right now. 32, 16. 
The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and I will will forsake me and break my covenant, which I made with them." There he's talking about it. He makes it very clear of what, what it is. You don't necessarily have the word there that we're looking at, but you have the covenant. And uh, he is really saying there that you forsook, forsook me. I don't want you to break my covenant. Uh, he has an anger, right? He could consume them. Go to Psalm 69.9. I'm just skipping a bunch of verses here. Are you, but are you getting the idea of this jealous God? He warned them and then he warns them and keeps instructing on them. 69.9, and for zeal in your house has consumed me. Zeal, zealous, in this case, this idea of jealous. And he reproaches, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is really a prophecy of later that when Jesus goes into the temple the first time, and he went in there later at the end of his ministry, in John 2 is the first time it happens, and he cleared out the temple because he was zealous or jealous for the Lord God. He was very angry at what was happening in the temple, wasn't he? And he cleared house. He was zealous for that. There it is. That's... His nature. Uh, We go to Isaiah chapter 42. It's the last one I'm going to do just for the sake of time. But it's almost hard to believe that it's in here this often, this teaching of a jealous God. Here's some things that... uh, he would do uh, in 13. It says, even from eternity. Wait, wait, wait. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal, his jealousy, like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He'll prevail against his enemies. He says, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both grasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands, dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things... I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be utterly turned back and be utterly put to shame, who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. There will be judgment. Same time, we see mercy and grace there. Aren't you glad that God is a jealous God and He's crying out all the time, I'm jealous for you. I don't want you to get into something that takes you away from me. It's not good for you. So we conclude with this topic of jealousy that it is a good thing if we look at 
in the way that God is and who he is. It is not mixed with human sin and error and weakness when we look at it when it's associated with God. He is a very possessive God. He owns us. I'm glad he does because if he doesn't own us, who does? He's possessive. He wants us for himself. All for himself. He wants us all and he wants us always. All the time. Is he worthy of this kind of jealousy? Yes, he is. That's who he is. I want you to think on this. What does this mean to me? We ought to be captured by this amazing thought that the God of the universe is jealous for me. You guys put your, your name in there or your me in there. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's not a bad term. It is good. I'm glad he's jealous for me. In his infinite power and in his infinite glory, God is jealous. Jealous for me. You know, it's better than a loving parent who wants the best entrance for their children. They want the very best for them. And that's good. And that's right. But a parent falls so far shy of the Father, God, we know, who is perfect. And if he has the attitude of this kind of jealously saying that I have my best interest for you. I am jealous for your best interest. How amazing is that? It's incredible, isn't it? So, he says this. I'm, it's like he's saying, I'm concerned. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. I betrothed you to one husband. He's concerned for the bride. Mentions husband, so it means there's a wife or a bride. During the betrothal time, the engagement time, there's a divine jealousy. And it's drawn from this picture here, as I had said earlier, this great picture. It's a figure of the marriage of the people of God to Yahweh. He says, I have betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin, not idolatrous. Wow. So we're talking about a divine betrothal and a divine marriage. Israel in the Old Testament is betrothed to Yahweh. It's very familiar in the Old Testament, and as we went through several passages on the jealousy of God, I think we're going to have to go through some passages on this familiar theme of the bridegroom and the bride, the husband and the wife, really. Isaiah 54, verse 5, kind of draws on that, and then as we get back into the New Testament, he'll draw us right into that picture. Isaiah 54, For your husband is your maker. Speaking to Israel there. For your husband is your maker. He's the creator whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. 
They were quite privileged. 62 of Isaiah. Verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Hey, church, do you hear that? And we'll see that being picked up in the New Testament. But specifically, he's saying, I occupy you and possess you. I rejoice over you. That's tremendous. That's what he's saying. There are other passages. We can go to Hosea and read that. What a great passage on the husband and wife there. And, of course, what did the wife do? She left and went into harlotry. That's what she did. Of course, Hosea went back and bought her out of the slavery that she was in to that. And continued on. That's what God does. Now, that's lying in the background of this whole thought. <coughs> Them leaving the Lord, their husband, and to follow false idolatry in the Old Testament, or in this case to the Corinthians, they were leaving the truth that Paul deposited as known as the gospel and going for false teaching, playing the spiritual harlot. Israel played the spiritual harlot. Here was the Corinthians. Some of them were playing spiritual harlotry. Paul is saying, I want to present to Christ this church as spotless and not idolatrous, a pure virgin. So now we have to go into the culture there a little bit. We looked at the Old Testament. The culture there is this. They would have known this even at the time of the Corinthians when they wrote this. Uh, the ancient Jewish culture, parents typically would uh, choose a wife for their son. The son didn't choose his wife. The parents did. <laughs> what do you think of that, Zach? <laughs> Parents typically choose a wife for the son and arrange for the marriage by a legal contract. It was then responsibility of the father to protect and to ensure that his daughter would remain in her virginity. That's the idea. The father is to watch out, protect her, to, to ensure. He makes a promise in this covenant that she is not going to be one of, out of her virginity during this betrothal period. She's not to have any kind of relations. It was as binding as the marriage itself. Of course, you think of Joseph and Mary and the, the betrothal. That was an engagement, but it was as binding as marriage was because of lack of time, but you can go into the law, you can go into Joel 1.8 and such. Uh, there you have, uh, that's how binding this, this was. Uh, our engagements are not quite as binding, are they? But uh, we get the idea. Uh, anyway, in the Old Testament language, there's a dowry. That a woman, if she's going to be married to a husband, she was to be presented... As a dowry, there's a dowry of virginity. That's her big dowry there in the sense that she has remained faithful 
That's a wife is to be married to a husband and a young maiden should present herself to uh, him as a virgin and likewise the man also. How foreign to the thinking of our society and the world today. But how foreign that is actually all through cross of ages. People have always engaged in that. We see in the law that you are to be committed to one woman, one wife, vice versa, one husband, as he mentions there. Uh, but we know because of because of uh, sin, uh, this these things happen that are not right. But anyway, that was a dowry that an individual would present to whom they're becoming united in in holy matrimony. Imagine that. That's what God has always had in mind. And by the way, he is coming back. You know what the, um, the one who made the proposal, the son would do now? He would go to his father's house and maybe even build on to that house. He's going to build a house for them. John 14 relates to that as Jesus is saying before he dies the next day. He lets them know, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. That's just like what the future husband is going to do now that this they've entered into this covenant, this contract. He's going to go build a house and he doesn't know when he's going to come back. Jesus says, I know not the time. The father does. It's because those young men would like to build a little little shack real quick and boom, get their bride and get married real quick. The father said, no, you're not done yet. That's, you're not getting away with that. He's, bu- he's building this place for us. This is going to be awesome, folks. I can't imagine. We put up all of our amazing buildings and all the things that human can do with the best of technology that man has ever known, and yet in one moment a tornado, hurricane can blast those buildings down. They're man-made. God's eternal dwelling place is going to be something like we've never seen before. We get these irises coming out, the roses coming out all at the same time, full bloom. It's just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. And they fade like in, in days, in weeks, they're, they're gone. And you go through the summer and there's hardly any other colors around. It's like, why can't that be all through the summer? God gives us a little taste. Just a little. I mean, it's so little. But it's amazing to us, but imagine what he's got prepared for us. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again, and I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. They knew That's what the proposing son, who is now going to be a husband in the future, that's what he would say when they made that covenant. That's the beautiful picture there. The Jewish wedding ceremony. I want to present one husband, a pure bride. Paul was the one who is the spiritual father. He wants to give the church 
there in Corinth to Jesus as a pure bride. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, Paul says, just like way God is. For I betrothed you to one husband. I brought you the gospel. I brought you Jesus Christ. So that to Christ, whenever he comes back as he is building this dwelling places, that I might present you as a pure virgin when he comes back. That's what he's saying. Is that incredible? That's the picture that he has just drawn. So when you bring in the Old Testament scriptures and you look at the the culture and the, what the people would understand at that time, Jews and Gentiles, then it all comes together. Paul's fear is that their minds may somehow be led astray. This is the people that he brought to Christ. Someone has come into Corinth and they're depriving Christ of a loyal bride. It's rightfully his. That's the covenant. Only a small number have, I think, bit off into this lie that has been presented, the the intruders that have come in. But there's a real danger, and Paul knows it, that the church as a whole may be carried along with this and led astray. The apostle is trading upon the fact, reminding the Corinthians that they have been brought to the one whom they are to be spiritually married to. That wedding hasn't happened yet. The wedding supper of the Lamb. We wait for. We wait for him to come back and that to come to consummation, don't we? The fullness. Paul, I want to present you as a pure virgin. I don't want you to be presented as a harlot church. It's a real danger here. I don't want you to go after this false teaching. Do you see his concern that he has? For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. You notice that one is emphatic to one husband, not to two, not to other ones. And we look in Ephesians 5, and you know what? We're not going to get to point three today. And I am really sorry. I'm not sorry for your sake. I'm sorry for my sake. I really wanted to glimpse into this again because he has a fear, and we haven't gotten to that. And it ties right in with what we've been talking about. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How are we cleansed each day? How are we sanctified? With the word of God. That, and here's our verse, that he might present to himself 
the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is what it's about. That's what Paul is talking about as he mentions it to the Corinthians here. And he, he's concerned deeply. And that's why he starts off in three, I'm afraid. And that's where we'll pick up next week. What's that? I fear you will not answer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this happens in systematic theology, doesn't it? You know what I feel like. Go to the Lord. Father, this is rather convicting because we know we are betrothed to Christ. We know there are stains. We know that there, are, there are sins there. We know that we sometimes are not obedient to you. We go astray. Lord, you desire for us to come running to you to see the forgiveness and see the beauty of the blood bought sinner has been saved by this redeemer we're overwhelmed we wait for you to come back at the same time we're in this betrothal to you we want to be pure it's a holy spirit who takes your word cleans us may your word today come in and clean us as we understand a little bit more about your character it's about you it's not about us we focus on ourselves so much help us to look to you and your return for us that we would have our candles lit and be ready thank you for this word today may it make an impact on us. May it truly be serious to us. We praise you for your greatness, your glory. We praise you for your name, Jealous. In your son's name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you. Till next time.